Good day to all of our investors and general listeners. This is the Rudd Commentary. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'll be your host on this presentation today. And with me today is Jack Herr, our Capital Markets Associate. For our new listeners who may not be familiar with our firm, the Rudd Company is a wealth management firm headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. We manage investments for clients across the country and specialize in active portfolio management, retirement planning, and the setup and management of employer-sponsored retirement plans. Jack, our topic of discussion today concerns something that is likely top of mind for many of our listeners since the arrival of the current health pandemic, but is on our minds every day here at the Rudd Company. We're going to explore and evaluating taking risks. I'm excited to get into risks and how that affects markets and other parts of life. Jack, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that my daughter, Caitlin, came over for dinner the other night. You know, I was trying to grill and, and she brought a vegan burger. Do you know what a vegan burger is? Yeah, I'm well aware. I've, I've seen those around the stores. doesn't cook very well or evenly, I might add, in my <laughs> experience. But I told her about the podcast and the topic and asked her why vegans as a group were so risk adverse. You know what she said? What'd she say? Because she thought her life might be at stake. <laughs> well, it makes sense. Jack, before we begin today, why don't you take our listeners into the trading room over the last month and share some timely updates? Yeah, definitely. Busy end of April, wasn't it? It was. I want to start with some positives in the market. Josh, wasn't sure if you were aware, but it was actually the best month for stocks in about 33 years. How about that? I saw that. Exciting. Yeah. So during our last podcast in the beginning of April, we were just starting to see the comeback of the market and the bounce back. Little did we know this would last actually the whole month. So I think one of the, the reasons that we moved up in the stock market over the last month was the solid earnings season. Even though most companies revised estimates down in March, we did see some outperformance and companies have done an okay job dealing with the pandemic. With a couple weeks left in earnings season, I've seen companies be less cautious, trying to generate more cash, buying back stock less, and focus more on shoring up the financials of the business rather than expanding. And then finally, the reopening of the economy. Obviously, that's top of mind for a lot of businesses wanting consumers back. It looks like about 50% of our states are due to open in early May at some capacity. I, th I think the market liked having the states weigh the economic and health impact of this virus. Josh, did any of those things stand out to you in particular? Well, the market in general, you know, you talked about earnings doing a little bit better than expected. And I've, I just have always thought that the market was very manic depressive in nature and its responses to negative news. And then it can almost turn on a dime and get euphoric. So it's no surprise there. And I also really liked the gears being switched from more of a face-to-face -face interaction and transactional business to more of a digital. And that was, we had already had tremendous momentum over the last several decades, right? Yeah. And that, but we really saw the digital companies lead with that, especially on the retail side, just absolutely amazing and very exciting for me too, to really see those leaders come out and do so well during this period. I'm really looking forward to earnings over the next couple of quarters, seeing how they rebound and which pockets of the economy are going to lead. I think there's several independent issues going on. You know, we've talked about oil and gas in the past that are a little more isolated, but gosh, all that was just magnified because of the virus, wasn't it? 
And I even think you brought up digital and things like that. Technology is going to be something to look at, which technology companies can use this work from home, stay from home and kind of rebuild their business model. Definitely interested in seeing that. And then on the flip side of things, starting to hear in the last couple of weeks that some analysts, respected analysts on Wall Street believe we're coming back a little too quick from the lows. I don't think this is a bad point considering the April we just had, the performance we just talked about. You know, with that performance, there's still a lot of uncertainty, and I, I think we can count on some more volatility here in the future. Some of that volatility may be caused by economic data that's still uncertain, GDP growth estimates, things like that. Also, when unemployment numbers continue to grow, you know, that's certainly going to affect the economy, and hopefully that'll start to flatline as people start to come back to work. We talked a lot about consumer sentiment at the beginning of this year. Obviously, we talked about the strong consumer and how that was driving the economy. Consumer sentiment starting to worsen a little bit, along with businesses remaining cautious, like I mentioned. All these things kind of beg the question, Josh, why has the market performed so well in April? I get this question a lot, especially from family and friends that are kind of wondering what's going on. And the thing I try to explain is that the market is forward-looking and that there are certain things that are priced in. Another thing I try to remind them of is most of this sell-off came before we saw the actual impact, both health and economic, of this virus. If a client came to you and asked you a question similar to that, what would you say to them? Jack, those are all really good points. I can sum it up just by saying that the market and the analysts don't have the data that they need. Later in the program, we'll talk a little bit about what speculation is versus taking calculated risks. In the absence of data, I'm not going to be too hard on the analyst or the economist right now. We just don't have a lot of data, and the range in variables are just really wide. We're seeing, for example, when you saw the unemployment benefit forecasts and jobless claims, and you saw the GDP contraction that we were all expecting, I mean, the plus or minuses were in 10, 20, sometimes even 30% movements. I would answer that just by saying that the market is trying to digest what it believes or is reasonable data and look forward and trying to heal as fast as it can. Unfortunately, the data is just not there, Jack. And I definitely second that. A lot of companies that have reported earnings aren't even given an outlook for the rest of the year. Clearly some uncertainty there. That's all I had today that I want to talk about in the market. Just a brief overview of the last month. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? No, that's great. All right. So that brings us to our topic today, which is risk. Let's just get right into it. Before we start, Josh, can you define what risk means to you and perhaps give us an example of risk? Great question and, and a big one. So it deserves a big answer here. And what I want to do a, a little different on this program is tell a little story about something that happened in my life that really had an impact on my attitude towards risk. So about eight years ago, I learned quite a bit about long-term investments and managing risks in a very unlikely place. In the spring of 2012, I began coaching my son's Little League baseball team and a really great group, Jack, of seven- and eight-year-old boys. Because this was my first year of coaching, I made a point to reach out to more of the experienced men in the league and solicit some advice on subjects, you know, some, such as the upcoming draft. Believe it or not, they do have a draft <laughs> for seven- and eight-year-olds. Just the season, how it goes, practice schedules, things like that. And, you know, I confided in them and shared my goals of planting the seed of confidence in the boys, along with trying to build character and encourage long-term relationships. And I did this by focusing on drafting boys from the same school with almost no knowledge of playing ability. 
Everything was going really well. Right up to opening day, I received a lot of encouragement from other coaches and definitely our parents. They communicated their support of my intentions to really invest heavily in their boys and in the development in the beginning, even if that meant losing some games in the short term, which was really, really good for me and gave me a lot of confidence going into the season. I was full of purpose and excited to mold the future of you know America and, and using these boys and, and, and our great pastime to do this as a tool. Unfortunately, the support for this mission evaporated before the end of the first game as our team lost the very first game by one run in extra innings. It was really a 180, Jack. After that game, I could hear chattering behind the scenes about poor coaching decisions at key moments of the game. I'm stepping back thinking, what in the world are they talking about? A few minutes later, the other team's coach pulled me aside and asked if I had been coaching in the league before. And of course, I said, no, Jack. He said that our team was clearly better and more prepared for the game, but he looked me in the eyes and asked me why I had my third baseman try to throw to first when he fielded a ground ball. Does that seem like an odd question to you? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was confused as well, and I said, because we're trying to throw the runner out. This is baseball, right? And I was a little put out by the question. He responded in a kind of a condescending manner to me, Jack, just telling me that a lot of these boys on the team have never played baseball before and that there are so few boys in the league that could even make that throw. And then he looked at me and said, you cost yourself the game in overthrows trying to get that out at first base, and that out's just not going to happen. And Jack, I walked away as a first-year, first-game coach with a pretty bad taste in my mouth, and it really bothered me for several days. I mean, in the end, this is recreational baseball, right? It's not a varsity high school team where you got to be a player to play on the field, and, and we all expect that. And my thought is, how do boys ever learn the sport, how to compete, how to overcome challenges if they're always afraid of losing? How do they get comfortable taking risks if we never let them do it in a safe environment? And most of all, how can they ever really celebrate winning if there's no risk of loss? Jack, the reason I I walked you you and our listeners through that story is it's the possibility of loss that creates risk. And that's really the simplest definition I can give you. I'll I'll go on to just point out, definitely based on the, the times that we're in right now, a lot of folks might argue that every effort should be made to eliminate the chance of loss or a risk, as we just explained it. I disagree with that. I'd not just argue that calculated risk was the primary and is the primary ingredient of success. I mean, Jack, think about our our country and how it was founded. But I would go further and to say that some level of risk is required for a positive rate of return, not just in investing, but in life in general. In order to aspire to make more out of what we've been given, Jack, we got to take risks. I completely agree. Uh, Just so you know, I played a lot of Little League baseball. I'm well aware of the politics that that goes into that. (laughs) They're definitely there. Appreciate the story. I think that's valuable for a lot of our listeners. You know, they can relate to that, you know, even having kids playing Little League. Thanks for that. Now that we have some context about risk, let's talk about financial risks in our industry specifically. Can you explain some of the risks that individuals face when investing? Well, it's very important and just really good question. Such a broad subject. I don't believe we have enough time to cover everything, but let me, Jack, just take a, a stab at shedding some light on the subject of risk. To begin, there are many kinds of risks we work with here to identify and help investors try to manage. The most obvious, I believe, that investors would think of is the risk of financial loss. Just to break this down, this just means that an investor 
invests a certain sum of money and doesn't get back their full principal, right? Yep. So I found that this risk is the risk that most investors think of and anchor on when considering an investment. And don't get me wrong, this risk is an important one, but is not the most common risk to investors. Yeah. And I think it's easy when, you know, you look at your statement day in and day out and see the value of a stock or a bond going up and down. That's the easiest one. There are just so many other risks that impact investors on a much more frequent basis and can cause problems if not managed correctly. So let me walk our investors through a couple of risks that they should recognize that are very common and more likely to have a direct impact on their ability to meet their financial goals. I believe the most important to mention in our work, or just the most common, is the risk that an investor will not be able to make a cash withdrawal when needed, right, Jack? Because this happens all the time, especially you on the trading desk. I mean, a lot of your job is generating cash for withdrawals. And we call this internally liquidity risk, or it might be simpler just to say withdrawal risk, but it represents the most common risk that I see impact investors' success because it's not understood or prepared for correctly. Any comments there, Jack? Yeah, I think this can be difficult at time. I'm sure you're going to go into it here. The longer we have when we know withdrawal is coming, the easier it is to both minimize the cost of the client, you know, make it easier on us. Absolutely. And we can also get the best price on that investment too when we have right. more time. I think just making sure that we're aware of those withdrawals and the types of investments that are best used and most liquid. And just to give an example, a couple of examples that might help investors as they think about liquidity or withdrawal rate risk, think about a long-term government bond, Jack. So we've got a long-term government bond, let's say 30 years, and it's guaranteed by the U.S. government, right? Yep. The short bonds may pay significantly less. So an investor might be attracted to go out to a longer-term bond, but they're not able to get their money out quickly. It's not something that they can just cash in at the price they paid for it. So one of the things that we do is we think about that withdrawal rate and have different layers of liquidity and withdrawal capabilities in the account that we manage. Probably not as headline worthy as the risk of default or not getting all your money back, but this risk, I would say, frustrates our investors on a much more frequent basis than a lot of the other risks that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Another example on a product, an insurance product uh, that's sold by insurance companies called an annuity has to do with an investment or limitations on how much you can withdraw. I'm not speaking about any product individually, but I can tell you that in our experience that a lot of annuity contracts sound really great and they pay a higher rate of return, but they have limitations on how much money you can withdraw either on a monthly or annual basis. Again, if there's an unknown that pops up, Jack, and we have to pull money out, that's a pretty frustrating risk that our investors are having to deal with at that time, not being able to have access to their capital or having to pay some large penalty to get their money out. Jack, if there's only one thing that our listeners and clients take away from this program today, it's this. There is a positive relationship between risk and return. You know how we talked a little bit about that longer-term government bond having a better rate in most cases than the short-term bond or the annuity having a more attractive rate? If investment A has a 3% rate of return and investment B has a 4%, investors must assume that investment B carries more risk, even if the stated credit quality is exactly the same. It's really as simple as that. The higher the rate, the more risk that's inherent in that investment. There's a reason why investment B has to pay a higher rate of return to attract investment dollars. So when you think about it, if you are chasing higher rates of return, you're really chasing higher risk. 
remember, Jack, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Don't ever forget that. Yeah, Josh, and I like the example of the treasury bond because it shows that two securities with the exact same credit quality, one's a longer maturity and has more risk to it because of that. Any other risks you want to bring up? Yeah, that's a great segue. You know, you talked about that treasury bond. There's also interest rate risk, which we talk about a lot here in the trading room as we're building portfolios, customized portfolios for clients, just to realize that interest rates going up and down, especially in this environment today, have a tremendous impact on your ability to raise cash when we sell investments. It's not just credit quality. Interest rates moving up or down impact the statement values that you're going to see on those bonds. That's not as well understood by investors and probably deserves a lot more discussion to explain how that works, but it is something that investors need to be aware of. Finally, Jack, I want to mention a risk that is really hidden and that I think is underappreciated in investing. We call it purchasing power risk, uh, but Jack probably has a better term for that. Inflation. Just inflation, very simple. You know, we all hear about our grandparents talk about how much a movie ticket cost here and how much gas was, which we, hey, with gas, we might go back down and see those lows here before too long. Yeah, but we're getting there. Costs generally go up over time. I would tell you that there is a risk of being too conservative over a long period of time. And I truly believe that that's a risk to investors that a lot of investors ignore, especially if you're younger or middle-aged and you still have at least a decade to invest, I would encourage you not to be too conservative. Inflation is really like a thief in the night, Jack, and it impacts your portfolio over a long period of time. We all see those charts of the stock market going up over 30, 40 years, but it's really tough in this environment with interest rates as low as they are. So I would just leave our investors with this. Inflation is real. Purchasing power risk over time is real. I would caution investors in being too conservative. Just to add on to that, like you said, silent thief, it's so difficult to tell when it may come. And before you know it, it might be there. Definitely agree with that. Now that we've defined what risk is and some of the financial risks that individuals may face when investing, can we talk about our company and how the Rudd Company assess risk for investors? Absolutely. I believe this is one of our strengths that really sets our firm apart from other choices an investor might have. To understand how we establish our recommendations, Jack, it's important for our listeners to understand the difference between an investor's communicated risk tolerance and that same investor's capacity to take risk. I found that many of the risk assessment techniques used by some of the drive-through investment firms, and especially the online do-it-yourself low-cost leaders, don't really do a good job explaining the difference between these two perspectives. Jack, just let me let me give you an example. When we onboard a new wealth management client, We spend time working through some initial interview questions designed to highlight an investor's general attitude towards risk under certain circumstances. We do this in several ways, but the objective is to review the investor's self-assessment of risk. Next, we work through some exercises designed to highlight any contradictions in their self-assessment and work to reconcile these using hypothetical examples and financial stress tests. This at best gives us an initial and partial picture of how risky an investor see themselves. But Jack, many firms, they just just stop here. So it's important to understand this is not a complete picture. So our next assessment has to do with an investor's ability to take risk that their attitude may suggest. This is especially important for those close or near to retirement. 
For example, an investor in retirement may have a very high perceiver risk, and just to remind you, Jack, just how they see themselves, and they could desire a rate of withdrawal that is at or approaching our maximum recommendation. So think about it, Jack. They think they're really in risk-seeking, and they also want to take out the maximum recommendation that, that we've given them. However, their financial situation, say, just as an example, dependent children, dependent adult children, I think, which is very common these days, or a high level of debt doesn't necessarily give them that flexibility to lower that withdrawal rate if they need to. This situation could result in a more conservative asset management approach recommended by us just due to the family's inability to meet their financial obligations, given a, a very probable economic decline such as the one we've just recently been through. It's critical that both an investor's communicated risk tolerance and their capacity to take that risk be evaluated before any asset management process begins. And Jack, I'll even go a step further and say that it may even take an additional six to 12 months or a market correction to really tighten up that understanding of an investor's ability to take risk. Why six to 12 months? Well, it just has to do with, in the last 20 years of doing this, Jack, I've really seen a difference in the way investors see themselves in that self-assessment and how they actually are. What I have found is that it usually takes a little bit of time for us as a firm to evaluate how that investor or that family is going to respond to these market ups and downs in a real situation. You really learn a lot about people when they're exposed to stress. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And I, I want to dive more into that point in the next few questions here. Jack, similar to the parents in my story earlier, it's under pressure that true objectives tend to surface. This is where our firm shines. This is where we add value beyond our competitors and, and online options. And I can definitely see the value we add here. Before I started working here, I thought it was more about the investments and things like that. I think the way we assess risk you know, how we can see the ability to take risks versus the willingness and blend those two together is very important in the process. I agree there. Now that we've talked about how we assess risk, what steps can investors take to mitigate the various investment risks? We talked a lot about the relationship between risk and return. So we're trying to mitigate risk while maximize return, correct? Oh, absolutely. On a prior podcast, we discuss what to do in the face of volatility. And I just want to point out that volatility is really a different issue. Risk is not the same as volatility. Volatility is more about the movement and measuring the movement of a security over a specific period of time. So first, I would say you've got to communicate with your advisor. And it's something that's very important to us. It's very possible that communicated risk tolerance, Jack, that we talked about earlier may have changed for our investors. And we need to know a little more about your situation. And it's critical information for your advisor. So definitely reach out and let them know. Maintain your target cash position and short-term investments and adjust those if needed. We've sent out several communications, and this has been one of the primary topics of discussion over the last several months, especially in, in the middle of this market environment. And really, I'd go beyond that and say to have a plan for those future withdrawals. We've talked about maintaining the right level of cash, but earlier in the call, you had mentioned it's much easier to raise cash if we have a little bit of runway before we do that. Yeah, definitely. We get better pricing and, and have an easier time selling those investments. I want to talk a little bit next about diversity, Jack. This is always something that comes up and it's a big topic. 
I want to give an example. Diversity is a good thing, and it's got benefits in certain areas and other areas it doesn't have benefits. And let's let's talk about those. So just as an example for our investors to take with them today, if you're a retired executive in any industry, not just oil and gas, you shouldn't have all your income, retirement, healthcare, and stock portfolio dependent on that one company's success. This is what pilots call a single point of failure. This means that one single event can cause a failure of your plan. And and Jack, that risk can be mitigated. It's one of the things we can have an impact on. I completely agree. On a side note, this does not apply to professionals like CPAs, financial advisors, attorneys, doctors, et cetera. I get a lot of questions of whether or not diversity applies to using multiple professionals. And I've never been a big fan of that, Jack, because you end up telling a third of your story to three different people and you never really get full advice. I would rather have someone go to a tax professional, legal professional, or a financial professional that they trust and, and really just just stick with them. Another step that investors can use to mitigate risk or, or just think about not investing in things that have all or nothing outcomes. We talked about, Jack, that single point of failure. It's kind of right. like when the railroad crossing alerts are going down. You know, there's only two outcomes that can happen from that decision to go across that track. You either make it or you die. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's not something that that we like here at the firm. We don't like outcomes with only an all or none outcome. It's just not a good thing for us, especially trying to manage risk. I would also say that just to stay current and knowledgeable for our listeners, you may have the best team of professionals in the industry, but understanding what you own and communicating your objectives on a regular basis can mitigate many of the risks that you face. And we talked about liquidity and inflation risk, which are two that you could definitely mitigate just by knowing what you own when things mature. And you don't have to be an expert, but it's uh, it's very good to know what you own. I think Warren Buffett said that as well. We talked a little bit about speculation, making an investment decision without having that good data and that thorough analysis. I'll just close this question with saying, don't speculate with money that'll be used to fund your core financial plan. Uh, we see a lot of speculation that goes on in the industry and, and some folks do very well. But if you're gonna speculate, make sure that if you have a total loss, it's not gonna impact your financial plan. And I think we can follow the bigger companies that I talked about earlier. They aren't speculating, they're saving cash right now, they're not trying to expand the business and they're kind of waiting to see how this all turns out before they go further. So do you have any other ways to mitigate? No, let's move on. All right. I want to talk about something that's a little more timely now. During periods like this, I think clients will have the tendency to look at risk tolerance and see that, okay, the market just went down and you know, may- maybe I need to you know, look at my tolerance and see, is my risk tolerance as high as I thought it was? I think you would agree with me, Josh, that you know, we'd rather try to look at risk tolerance before times like this so you don't experience a market sell-off and you're left with portfolio that's considerably less than it was. Just wanted to ask you, what can we learn about our risk tolerance from periods like this? I think, Jack, that is the most important question that you've asked and a great one, really. I don't think it's reasonable for investors to expect themselves to just have nerves of steel all the time and for market declines not to impact them, especially one that will go down as being one of the most challenging in my career. I believe we we need to step back and understand that market declines, whether we define them as recessions, depressions, those things are normal in a free market economy and they're going to continue to happen. 
we can, as we discussed before, Jack, we can mitigate certain risks in certain areas, but the market declines are not going to stop. That's just capitalism, and that's what happens in a free market. Right. And I'm not saying I enjoy it, and, and it's great, but we've talked about in the past how it gives us opportunities for investment, and there are some positive things that happen as well. As I'm talking through this, I'm thinking about a, a quote from Viktor Frankl, and if you don't know, uh, or our listeners don't know who he is, I would encourage you to go and Google him. He said, what is to give light must endure burning. And I think about that often and at times when we really go through some challenges about what it takes to really win, that we have to have the opportunity for loss there. And times like these, I'm just referring, Jack, just to the financial markets can bring to light our willingness and ability to take financial risk, as we talked about, you know, how we get to know our clients a little better when we go through times like this. But in order for us to properly assess client risks, we really need to know what matters to that client, what matters to them. I would encourage our investors that it's wise to take some time to consider what we just went through and ask yourself that question again. What matters to you? And and let's start just as an example here asking why you invest. And I'd ask our investors to think about that right now. Why do you invest? Some of the most common answers we get are to make money or to earn a return. And I would encourage you to continue each time that you respond to ask yourself why on that new response. So why do you need to earn a return? Why do you need to make money? And then just keep going. I've got to pay for kids' college or I've got a plan for retirement. Why do you need to do that? Just continue to do that. And over some time, it may be a little repetitive and frustrating, but you'll eventually get to what matters to you. And that is what we need to earn your trust and to do our job here at the Rudd Company. We need to know what matters and why you invest. Yeah, I like how you put it. More of a longer term perspective of why you're doing things, what your goals are. And I know that's something that Dan, our financial planner, focuses on a lot and you as well. This was a great discussion, Josh. Do you have any other comments or recommendations for investors as they work through this unique period in history and reassess their own risk tolerance? I do, and I appreciate the opportunity. All I'll say is, is like the story I told at the beginning of the program, I believe we can only achieve success, whether in investing or other endeavors, if we take the necessary risk to achieve that goal. In order to do that, we've got to know what the goal is for us and our family. My goal in that example, Jack, that I gave you earlier in coaching that team was to have a positive impact on 12 boys and help them become men. Baseball was really just the tool. In the end, risk is not something bad or something to eliminate. Calculated risk is a key ingredient in success and greatness. Jack, can you think of where we'd be today if the 13 American colonies were a little too risk averse? Well, Josh, I think that's definitely something to think about. I agree. At the Rudd Company, we avoid forming theories or making investment decisions without evidence and thorough analysis. Doing so is called speculation, not risk, and certainly not investing. So before we end today, Josh, I have to ask, what happened to your son's baseball team? Well, it was a very trying season. It, it took, I believe, a total of 10 games to get those boys enough practice doing the things and taking the risks that they needed to to really get better and to develop some really fundamental skills in baseball. But I will tell you that we did win the last couple of games of the season. We barely made the playoffs. We were the last seed going into the playoffs and won our first game. Do you know anything about single elimination brackets in Little League, Jack? 
Yeah, you were probably playing the first place team, right? We did, and I can tell you that those boys celebrated like they won the World Series. It was it was uh, something to see. They had the sweetness of victory because of all the risk and hard work that they had all season. It was a wonderful experience, and I kept coaching after that. So you're saying some calculated risk pays off, huh? Not all the time, Jack, but it uh, it definitely it definitely does more often than not, and it sure feels good. At this time, I'd like to take a moment to invite you, our investors and listeners, to share your comments and ideas for future topics of discussion on this program. Again, our goal in doing these is not just to inform, but to add value and give our clients guidance on topics relevant to them in a simple and easy format. And we can only do this if we know what you want to hear. So please take some time throughout the month to send us a message through our website at therudcompany.com or send us an email to rudco at therudcompany.com with your comments and suggestions. We would really love to hear from you. In closing, I would also like to thank all of our clients. Without you, we would not have a job. Thank you for the trust you place in our firm. All of us here at The Rudd Company have a passion for wealth management and helping you win and achieve your long-term financial success. Thank you very much for listening today. This is The Rudd Commentary. I'm your host, Josh Rudd. And from all of us here at The Rudd Company, invest long and prosper. This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.